Yeah, the parsha of Vaera begins, as we know, with the famous <coughs> expressions of uh, Geula, uh, four that are five, um, and uh, we, we know, of course, Votsesi, Vitalti, Vikaalti, Vilakarti. There is actually uh, one expression that we're uh, very familiar with, which I would like to take a bit of a look at, and that is in Pasuk Vav, which is in the third of the what's called the expressions of Geula. Um, we refer to them as Lashonos of Geula, expressions of Geula. The Yerushalmi calls them four Geulos, which indicate more that there are four stages in the process. Sometimes if you say four expressions of something, it sounds like four ways of saying the same thing. But uh, these are not uh, exactly the same. The, it, it is a progression, but uh, be that as it may. So in the third expression of Geula, or the third Geula, <coughs> we have... <coughs> um, well, the, the three of them are in Pasuk Vav, so let's start from the beginning. Lachene mor Yisrael, ani Hashem, say to Bnei Yisrael, I am Hashem, that's stage number one, I will take you out from the burdens of uh, Egypt. Number two, I'll save you from their work. And number three, I'll redeem you with an outstretched arm, and shvotim gedolim, and great judgments. And the expression that I wanted to focus on is zroa And I think it's fair to say that we don't really do justice to this expression, zroa We normally meet it together with its uh, erstwhile partner, Yad Chazaka, on Seder night. They always go together, Yad Chazaka with zroa <coughs> And because they keep each other company, so to speak, um, we don't necessarily feel the need to ask uh, what exactly do they mean? What is Yad Chazaka? And what is Zoranatuya? So actually, although we're focusing on the second one, the outstretched arm, Zoranatuya, but just to mention by way of preface that many Mepharshim say that Yad Chazaka, the strong hand, <coughs> is actually a reference to the hardening of Paro's heart. And that is why at the end of last week's Parsha, when things seem to have gone backwards, Moshe confronts Paro, and Paro only made things more difficult for the Jewish people, and Moshe comes to complain, and Hashem says to Moshe, now you will see. With an ayin. Now you will see <coughs> that he will send you out biyad chazaka. What does it mean for Paro to send you out Biyad Chazaka? What it means is the process of hardening Paro's heart, otherwise known as Yod Chazaka, has now been set in motion. Because through the first round, so to speak, going well for Paro, and he seemingly have succeeded in making things difficult for the Jewish people, more difficult, and defying uh, the God that Moshe represents, Paro now will go through a lot of makos before, re- before it being able to admit that he was wrong. That's called Yad Chazaka, the hardening of Paro's heart. <coughs> but what is Zroa So this question is discussed by the Ksava Kabbalah, Rabbi Yaakov Mecklenburg. And he, he actually focuses on the word Netuya. Because what does Natui mean? Natui means extended. So it's not so much an issue of strength, but the focus is more on 
extended. <coughs> the question is, extended where? Extended from where into where? What is the meaning of this? And that's why the Ksav Kabbalah explains that the expression Zroenetuya is a reference to the miraculous nature of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. And that is called Zroenetuya, an outstretched arm. Why? An extended arm. <coughs> because the arm is, represents the force. And in the natural order of things, everything has its boundaries where its forces are in play. And what is a miracle if not the extension of that force into a domain which is beyond its natural boundary? That's what a miracle is. And therefore, Zroa Nutuya, things are extended beyond where we'd normally expect them to go, otherwise known as a miraculous exodus. And <coughs> before we move back to, to Zroa Nutuya, it's worthwhile mentioning for a moment that what the Pasuk is saying according to the Ksava Kabbalah is that Hashem says the redemption will be miraculous. Which is interesting <coughs> because what difference does it make, one may ask, even if the miracles have their purpose, but how does it actually impact the redemption itself? The other expressions, I'll save you from their work, I'll take you out from their burdens, I mean, those are descriptions of the redemption, of what it's doing. Here, the fact that it's miraculous, one could say, is neither here nor there. Why is it such an integral part of these opening expressions of redemption, of the stages of redemption? <coughs> but as we've mentioned in the past, <coughs> one of the aspects of the redemption of the Jewish people is the honor of the Jewish people. Subjugation, as we know, <coughs> is, does not just take physical form or economical form or political form. Subjugation is also takes the form of of, of attacking the honor of the Jewish people, which itself could, could take many forms, whether they have no dignity, whether they're vilified. As we know, to, uh, we are surrounded by uh, oppression in the form of <coughs> the, the, the honor of the Jewish people. It is being attacked uh, on an ongoing basis. There is no greater assault on the honor of the Jewish people than turning them into slaves. And that is before you even get to what it is, the hard work that they have to do as slaves. And the, the risk to life and limb that exists as slaves. The very status as a slave is already an act of subjugation because it strips them of their dignity and robs them of their honor. So how are they redeemed from that? The answer is through a miracle. The more high-end the production of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, <coughs> the more the honor of the Jewish people is redeemed. Because if turning them into slaves is saying that they are, are worth nothing, for Hashem to perform miracles and turn the world upside down for them is basically expressing the idea that he feels that they're worth quite a lot. And his opinion holds sway at the end of the day. And therefore... Zroa Netuya is an integral part of the Geula, and that's why it's mentioned here in these, these opening, uh, these opening psukim. <coughs> so according to summarize, according to the Ksava Kabbalah, Zroa Netuya is things extended beyond their natural boundaries, what we call a miracle. What's very interesting is there's a similar comment, similar in direction, 
which is found in the commentary Or Yesharim to Haggadah Pesach, which was authored by Rabbi Chiel Heller. There were four brothers, the, the, the brothers Heller, Rabbi Yeshua Heller is well known. <coughs> Each one of them was, uh, was greater than the next. <coughs> and he was the Rabbi Sulvalk, in fact. And his parish on the Haggadah or Yesharim, he says something very interesting. Because as we know, uh, we, we spoke about this last week, <coughs> in, on Seder night, we take the four or five verses from Aramio Vedavi, we break them into pieces, and each word we say, Kamashin Emar, this is, means this, this means this. <coughs> and there we mention Zroanatuya. And each of those has an explanation attached to it. And what is the explanation attached to Zroanatuya? Says the Haggadah, and one needs to be, I think, a, a Haggadah aficionado to recall this offhand because it's very deep into Magid, but, uh, but it's actually unforgettable. Uvizroa Natuya says the Haggadah, Zuhacherev. That's the sword. And what no one explains is what sword? There was no sword involved in Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, there was basically everything else. All the forces of nature were brought, into, it, it brought to bear, and, and miracles occurred with them. But there was no sword. I think it's fair to say, again, by that stage in Magid, whatever the Haggadah says, that's what we'll say. Matzah is nigh and uh, will not be denied. But that's all the more reason for us, uh, on some other occasion, to raise the question, which sword are we talking about? Find a sword in all of Parshas uh, Shmosva era, but you won't find it. Says Rebichiel Heller, but there was a sword that was raised against Paro. Not by Hashem and not by the Jewish people. By Egyptians. Where did this happen? As we know, it's actually a well-known medrash, <coughs> that when Moshe came and forecast that the firstborn were to be uh, struck on the, on the 15th or the 14th of, uh, of Nisan. So, in the night, and Paro said no, but the, but the firstborn got wind of this. And they weren't, they weren't prepared to say no, because they knew that they were in danger. And <coughs> they came to Paro, and demanded that he let the Jewish people go, and Pyro refused. And there is ensued an armed revolt on the part of the Egyptian firstborn to try and get Pyro to change his mind and do something, because they knew they were finished. That is what the Pasuk is referring to when it says in Tehillim, Lemakem Mitzrayim Bivechorehem, to smite Egypt with its firstborns. That is to say, we would have understood it means to smite the first boards of Egypt. But it doesn't say, Lemake Bechore Mitzrayim. It says that on other occasions, but not here. Lemake Mitzrayim Bivechorehem means <coughs> to smite Egypt through its firstborns because they became then part of Makas Bechorus. Says Rebichiel Heller, this is. 
the Cherev that the Haggadah is referring to. Because and when we say Uvizroa Natuya, Zeacherev, what we're saying again, you see how it's in league with what the Ksava Kabbalah says. That Natuya means it's extended. Forces were extended beyond where you'd expect them to be. Normally, you'd expect the Egyptian forces to be working for Egypt and the Jewish forces working against. But all of a sudden, Hashem reaches into the Egyptian forces and turns them on Paro. That's a Zroanatuya. That's an extended arm. Because even the enemy was working against himself, that's a, that's a deep reach. Uh, and that's an amazing explanation of that very cryptic sounding uh, um, commentary of the Haggadah with Zroanatuya, Zuhacherev. Okay, so we spent. Uh, a good few moments talking about the expression Zroanatuya. It's good. The Zroanatuya itself needs to be redeemed, uh, I think, from lack of attention. Uh, and hopefully we've done uh, some justice to that. So Moshe comes and <coughs> tells all these messages of redemption to the Jewish people. And that's in Pasuk uh, Tess of Perig Vav. This is all in the beginning of the Parsha. Moshe says uh, thus to Bnei Yisrael, Velo Shomu El Moshe. But they didn't listen to Moshe. Due to shortness of breath and, and the hard work. And the simple meaning of the Pasuk is they didn't have time or the in, inclination or the patience to listen to Moshe. They were working so hard and they weren't interested. That's what it sounds like on a simple level. But of course, Mepharshim raised a simple question. At the end of last week's Parsha, Moshe comes to the people, tells them they're going to be redeemed, and the Pasuk says they believed him. Now at that time, they were also working hard. They also had kotzer ruach, shortness of breath, avodah kosha, hard labor. It didn't stop them from believing Moshe. So seemingly, those aren't reasons. <coughs> How then do they become reasons in our Parsha of Va'era? Well, the simplest, I think, uh, answer to this question is provided by the Chizkuni. And that is that everyone gave Moshe a hearing last week because they had great expectations. Moshe comes and says redemption is nigh. And they were, they, they were full of hope. And they believed him. But those hopes were dashed at the end of Parsha Shemos because life became more difficult for them. And power made things uh, increasingly harder. And therefore, they were prepared to hear Moshe the first time round, but not the second time round. Um, they'd experienced disappointment and disillusionment, and we're not, we're not going to hear Moshe anymore at this stage. That presumably is the simplest answer to this question. What changed between the first time and the second time? <coughs> the first time there was hope, this time they'd suffered disappointment. But there is a comment of the Ralbag, and it's a big Chiddush. And I, I'm not aware of anyone else who, who speaks in this vein, but uh, Ralbag deserves to be heard, one of the Rishonim. The Ralbag explains Avodah Kosha similar to the, to the Chizkuni. Hard work, again, and he also explains, and it had become harder, and therefore they lost, Moshe lost their, their confidence, it seems. But what about kotzer ruach? It's a very enigmatic expression. Shortness of spirit. 
impatience of spirit. What does it mean? Says Rabag, and in fact, I think it's worth, it's two lines, it's worth hearing his words themselves. Says Rabag, They did not believe Moshe. Moshe. Because Moshe had Kotzer Ruach. And what does Kotzer Ruach mean? Moshe had Kotzer Ruach. In what sense? Lehisbonin besidu devarav karaui. To think about how to arrange his words appropriately. Kedeshi yapelahem zehama'amar. In order to make his message appealing to them. That his words would be received by them. According to the according to the Rabag, means that, that Moshe Rabbeinu did not give due attention to, to make sure that his message will be well received, to try and make it somehow attractive to them. Why? Why not? Because, says the Ralbag, Moshe spent much of his time in solitude, meditating, connecting with Hashem. And that meant that <coughs> to make a connection with the Jewish people who were in uh, a, a, a a mode where they weren't receive, where they weren't open to, to receiving or open to hearing, for Moshe, who was so directly connected to Hashem, there was no attention given to try and help them accept the message. And I think what the Rabbag means to say is that that for if for someone who was so closely uh, connected to Hashem, if Hashem says that's what's going to happen, then that's what's going to happen. It doesn't make a difference how you say it, or whether you make it sound appealing, or make it sound uplifting, or encouraging, or inspiring, or comforting. It is what it is. It's it's the truth, and people need to receive it. But but people aren't always in receiving mode. That's quite a chiddush of the Rabag. In other words, there's two things now that, that had the Jewish people not, not so open to receiving the message. Number one, Moshe didn't make it appealing to them. It's called Kotzer Ruach. And number two, life had gotten that much harder. What's very interesting is, and of course, I think it's important to say that this is Moshe's first exposure to the people. One, one has to hesitate before presuming to talk about things like this, but I think it's an important follow-up to, to the Rabag. <coughs> it's now... And Moshe's first exposure to the people that he's up there, they're down here, and it seems never the twain shall meet. But over the fullness of time, there isn't anything Moshe won't do for them. And when Hashem starts to give him messages like, I will destroy the Jewish people, we see Moshe is quite, is quite capable of taking the side of the people and even defying what seems to be like a, a divine decree, putting himself out for them, etc. and so forth. So, so that was something that would progress so to speak, with time. <coughs> but in the meanwhile, the people aren't hearing Moshe. And what's interesting is, that gives us a deeper insight into Aaron's role. The Partis Yosef, one of the great uh, Malaktim, though, what this encyclopedic work, Rabbi Yosef Potsanovsky, um, he explains, if you look in Pasuk, 
Kaf Vav and Kaf Zion. You'll see something interesting. We're still in Perik Vav. Pasuk Kaf Vav and Kaf Zion. And it's given us the background to, to Moshe and Aaron. And then you have Psukim which seem to, to be Psukim of summation. Pasuk Kaf Vav. Who Aaron and Moshe? That's Aaron and Moshe. Asher Amar Hashem lehem otzius espede Yisrael me'eretz Mitzrayim al tzivosam. That Hashem told Aaron and Moshe to take the Jewish people out of Mitzrayim. Next, Pasuk Kaf Zayin. Heim ha-medabrim el paro melech Mitzrayim. They were the ones who spoke to Paro. Lo tzius bene Yisrael me'eretz Who? Moshe ve'aharon. That's Moshe and Aaron. So, on the face of it, these two psukim seem to be, again, both psukim of summation, but they seem to be largely saying the same thing. That's Moshe and Aaron, that's Aaron and Moshe, but it is divided into two. And not only is it divided into two, but within these two psukim, the order of who is mentioned first between Aaron and Moshe flips. In the first verse, Kafvav, it mentions Aaron before Moshe. Who? Aaron and Moshe. In the second pasuk, it concludes, who Moshe va Aaron? So the question is, which is it? Is it Aaron and Moshe, or Moshe and Aaron? Says the Pardis Yosef, the key to understanding these two psukim is to understand the special role that both Moshe and Aaron had. It wasn't the same. Because Moshe <coughs> is, of course, representing HaKadosh Baruch Hu in confronting Paro and warning him about the Makos and being instrumental for, for the process of, 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 uh, of, of securing the release of the Jewish people. In that respect, Moshe is primary. Aaron is there as his, as his spokesman or as his, his uh, interpreter, but uh, Moshe for sure is, is the primary agent there. But when it comes to the Jewish people, because there's two sides to the Exodus. There's dealing with the Egyptians and getting them to let the Jewish people go. But there's dealing with the Jewish people and getting them ready to go. And the type of way that you need to speak to Paro, and maybe even the person who's qualified to speak to Paro, might be different than the one who's most primarily qualified to speak to the Jewish people. As we saw when, when Moshe complains to Hashem to say... And, and if we have a look here in Pasuk Yud Beis, famous, uh, famous words. Moshe speaks harshly, it seems, to Hashem, uh, so to speak. The Jewish people didn't listen to me. How will Paro hear? I'm uh, hard of speech. That's when Hashem attaches Aaron to Moshe, commands them to the Jewish people and to Paro Melech Mitzrayim. Aaron now has a role <coughs> speaking to B'nai Yisrael, and in that respect, his role is primary because Aaron knows how to speak to the Jewish people. And that is why, says the Pardes Yosef, if you look in Pasuk Kaf Vav, to come back to these two Psukim of summation, Kaf Vav and Kaf Zion, when it says, Who are Moshe? 
and it mentions Aaron before Moshe, it's because what the verse goes on to describe is Asher Amar Hashem Lahem Get the Jewish people out. That's about dealing with the Jewish people, getting them ready to leave. Well, in that respect, Aaron is mentioned first. Because Aaron was the primary spokesman to the Jewish people. The next Pasuk Kafzayin, which says, hey, Oh, when it comes to speaking to Paro, to secure the release of the Jewish people, so then who Moshe Aaron? So then Moshe is mentioned before Aaron, because in that respect, Moshe was primary. So this Pardes Yosef really echoes what the uh, Ralbag was saying, <coughs> that at least at this stage, Moshe is in a state of kotzeruach with, with the Jewish people. And therefore you need someone like Aaron, who we might invent the phrase, had erech ruach. That is to say, he, he, he was able to invest more in, in, in encouraging the people, etc., I will mention, having, having this, uh, looked at these two psukim, kafvav and kafzayin, there is a comment of Rashi, because Rashi also notes, interestingly, the difference between these two verses. Who comes first? Aaron or Moshe? So let's learn a Rashi. Rashi says halfway through his comment in Pasuk kafvav, Yesh mekomos shemaktim Aaron Moshe. There are places. There are some places where it mentions Aaron before Moshe, and there are other places where it mentions Moshe before Aaron. What's the moral of the story? So unlike the Pardis Yosef, Rashi does not say, well, in this respect, Aaron is primary, and in this respect, Moshe is primary, but rather he takes the whole thing together. It's a composite message. You have a number of psukim. Sometimes Aaron is first, and sometimes Moshe is first. Put it all together. And what does it teach you? That they were equal. In other words, the Pasuk, the Chumash will not say two things at once. So, how, so what, one of them has to be mentioned first. But if they're both equal, who will you mention first? The answer is, have sometimes Aaron is first, sometimes Moshe is first, and then you'll get the message. As, as if to say, it doesn't matter. Because they're both equal. Both equal in what respect? There's many respects in which we know they were not equal. Lo kombi Yisrael Novi Odka Moshe, etc. But in what, to whatever degree they were, yes, considered equal, that's how the Pasuk demonstrates equality by flipping the order, sometimes this way, sometimes that way, and then you get the full message. You just have to make sure to take note of all the, of all the instances of all the Psukim, and then you'll get it. And remember who was first and how things get reversed. Rashi's source is from the Medrash, from the Medrash Rabbah, uh, Shmos Rabbah. Now, what's very interesting is, <coughs> Moshe and Aaron are not the only ones that the Medrash makes this comment on, namely, the order's reversed to teach you that they're equal. It makes it about others as well. We'll just take one example. Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. So, of course... They're always called Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov for obvious reasons. But there's one place where the order is reversed. That's in Parshas Bechukosai. It's a posseg that's well known to us from the Slichos. V'zocharti esbrisi Yaakov 
First Yaakov, the Afes Brisi Yitzchak, then Yitzchak, the Afes Brisi Avraham. And the Medrash gets going and says exactly the same thing. You see, normally Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. But you see, here it's reversed. Yaakov, Yitzchak, Avraham. To teach you, Shekulam Shkulim, that they're all equal. Very nice. So the question that remains for us to ask is, Rashi, in our Pasha, with regards to Moshe and Aaron, he quotes the Medrash. Sometimes this way, sometimes that way. He invokes, enlists the Medrash of this idea that if the order is reversed, it tells you they're equal. But he doesn't do so on that Pasuk of Yaakov, Yitzhak, and Avram. And they both come from the same Medrash. So why did Rashi enlist the Medrash of equality for Moshe and Aaron, having reversed the order, but did not do so for Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, even though it's born of exactly the same concept, the order is reversed? Interesting Shaila. This Shaila is raised by the Lubavitcher Rebbe who has many, many fascinating insights into Rashi. For a number of years, he devoted uh, much of his uh, sikhs to Rashi, and it's really out of this world. Says the Lubavitcher Rebbe, uh, and we see how, it's, it, I think it's chinuch in how to learn Rashi. And it reminds us again, Rashi often quotes the Medrash. He'll often quote explanations of the Medrash, but he only does so to resolve pshat issues. And what that means is sometimes the Medrash is broader than Rashi and he'll be selective. If he needs it for what's called a pshat issue, he'll use it. And if he doesn't, he'll leave it. <clears throat> Even though in the repository of, of the Medrash, there could be many, many more explanations and many more comments. But Rashi doesn't need to enlist them in his pshuta shomikra reactions and responses. What's the key here? How, what's the difference between Aaron and Moshe and Yaakov? The answer, says the Lubavitcher Rebbe, is in front of us in Rashi, who began with the words, Yesh Mikomos. There are times, and there are places, but there are times where it mentions Moshe, Aaron before Moshe, the Yesh Mikomos, and there are other times where it mentions Moshe before Aaron. You know what that means? It means the difference between the Moshe and Aaron case and the Avram Yitzhak Yaakov case is that in the Moshe and Aaron case, there's a number of times where it mentions Aaron first. And there's a number of other times where it mentions Moshe first. So it's sometimes this way, sometimes that way, backwards, forwards, keeps on changing. That gives you a message of equality. How is this different than the other case? Because in the Avram Yitzhak Yaakov case, it's always Avram Yitzhak and Yaakov, with one exception. That one posuk, that one time where it mentions Yaakov, then Yitzhak, then Avram. And, and what does the Rebbe mean to say? What he means to say is, <coughs> we know that the drash is more sensitive than the pshat. I think that's probably the most accurate way to put it. The drash is more sensitive. That's why the drash responds to things that the pshat does not. Because the pshat just wants to make a straight reading. It takes more to get the pshat uncomfortable. It takes more to get the pshat activated. Because if it seems straightforward, it is. The pshat is not looking for trouble. But the drash 
is hypersensitive. The way that we've expressed it in the past, pshat analyzes, drash scrutinizes. And therefore you'll see a higher level of sensitivity. It will respond quicker to something that will take the, that the pshat would not be moved by. So, here's a good example. The medrash responds to all of these cases because it just takes one exception and the medrash is already involved. It's always Avramitzak and Yaakov. It just takes one time where the order is reversed and the medrash is already awake and, and ready to act and explain. You see, it's... But the pshat, if there's one exception, so maybe there's a reason for the exception. Maybe it can just be treated lo- locally on pshat terms or in other terms. And indeed, if you look in Rashi on that posuk, which mentions Yaakov, Yitzhak, and Avram, he discusses it locally. He says Yaakov's merit alone should be enough. And if it's not enough, then Yitzhak. And if the two of them are not enough, then Avram. So whatever that comment of Rashi means. <coughs> but we see that he didn't get mobilized in a, in, in, in a grand equation based on this one episode of reversing the order. He preferred to treat it on its own terms because it's a milder reaction. That's a pshat reaction. And to summarize, therefore, it's amazing the attention to detail that the Drash did this on, with, with regards to two types of, sets of people. And Rashi only quotes one of them because only one of them satisfies Rashi's criteria that a flag goes up even from a pshat point of view. If there's a number of cases where it's Aaron first and a number of cases where, where it's Moshe first, says Rashi, I'm prepared to bring you the Medrash. But if it's one case where it mentions Yaakov, then Yitzhak and Avram, I'll deal with that on its own terms. I'm not going to bring the Medrash, even though they both came from exactly the same place. So, again, uh, re- a real... A real tour of this Rashi from uh, from the Lubavitcher Rebbe. But either way, how did we get onto this <coughs> uh, Moshe and Aaron, Aaron and Moshe? Because the Pardes Yosef said that in some respects Aaron was primary in speaking to the people. That's pasuk kafvav, and in other respects Moshe is primary in terms of talking to Para. There is one final comment. I know we're, st- we're yet in the beginning of the Parsha. There's certain Parshas where, where the biggest Shaila on the Parsha is how come there's only one week to learn this Parsha? These Parsha Shamos and Va'era and Bo should take a two or three weeks uh, minimum. Uh, I, I would have thought, but uh, I wasn't consulted, so we have to work within the time that we have. Because there is another expression, there is another explanation which is most profound. And it comes from the Meshachachma, again with regards to Kotzer Ruach. The, 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 and, and he understands that the Jewish people have Kotzer Ruach, it's Kotzer Ruach and Avodah Kosher, and they're not, they're not listening to Moshe. But what's interesting is, Moshe tells them about the redemption, they're not listening, and Hashem says, just keep going. Just keep going. Just do it. It sounds like do it anyway. So we don't really seem to have taken much notice of the Jewish people who, who, who weren't listening because it's, it's too bad because the time has come to leave Mitzrayim. But the truth is, says the Meshachachma, it did make a difference. It made a difference not only in terms of who was speaking to them, but what was said to them. How so? The opening stages of redemption, <coughs> as mentioned in the beginning of Parshas Va'era, are five in number. Not four, five. 
We have the famous Vautesi, Vitsalti, Vigaalti, Vilakachti. There is a fifth, of course, Vehevesi, that I will bring them to, to the land. Okay. Moshe comes and says all that to the Jewish people. And the Pasuk says they couldn't hear it. What couldn't they hear? Because of Kotzer Ruach, they couldn't hear the message. What couldn't they hear? None of it, says the Meshachachma. They couldn't hear the whole thing. In other words, they were so buried under their subjugation in Egypt, they couldn't see beyond leaving Egypt. Which means that for, if you want to talk about getting us out, we'll get out. If you want to talk about what's going to happen then, we, can't, we don't have the horizons for that. We don't have the vision for that. It's a shortness of spirit. Kotzer Ruach, their spirit didn't extend that far to then where will we go. Get us out, then we'll talk about when we'll go. They couldn't, they, the, there was no room in their head for, for, the, for the broader vision and the broader goal of taking them to Eretz Yisrael. So, the very next Pasuk says, Bo daber el paramelech mitzrayim v'shalach es b'nei Yisrael me'artso. From this point onwards, until further notice, there is no mention of, of taking them to Eretz Yisrael again. Because they can't deal with it. They, they, can't, they, they can't conceive of it. They just have to get out of Mitzrayim. And that's why Pasuk Yud Gimel, likewise, Vaitzavema b'nei Yisrael, Vaparamelech Mitzrayim, Lotzias b'nei Yisrael, Me'eretz Mitzrayim. Just get them out of Egypt. What, what will happen next? We'll talk about it then. That's a, it's an amazing parish of, of, of Meshachachma. And I think there's room to follow up on this parish in the following way. If it's true that originally the Jewish people, because of this persecution and Kotzeruch, they, they, they couldn't, there was no room for, for the land of Israel in terms of their horizon in the, in the way that we've expressed it. So when will there be room for the land of Israel? When they get rid of their Kotzeruch? Or to put it slightly differently, one of the hallmarks of the Jewish people achieving redemption is that they will then be open to the full picture of redemption. So it's very interesting. Or to put it in slightly different terms, when, you, when they've had enough of the first four stages of redemption, their minds will be open now for stage five. When did that happen? Kriyas Yamsuf. If you look at, at Az Yashir, What's interesting is, it starts what we would call on topic, as if to say it's about them being pursued, the sea splits for them, it it drowns the Egyptians, etc. That's all on topic. But then the last third of Az Yashir goes what we would consider completely off topic. Tivi emo, vesita emo, baharnachalasacha, you'll take them, you'll bring them, machon all of a sudden they're saying, and now we're going to go to Israel. And they even talk about the effect that Kriyas Yamsuf has on the nations in, in, in the land of Canaan. 
Peleshes are scared of us now. They're all scared. Everyone's quaking. We're on the way. We're on the way to the land of Israel. What's it got to do with Kriyas Yamsuf? Because Kriyas Yamsuf liberated them to the extent that they once again, the land of Israel as their final destination, was able to be put back on the map. So I think one can really see a circle being closed between the beginning of our Parsha, where Ruach, they could only take the redemption in, in piecemeal. They could only take it in installments. But by the time they'd been redeemed enough by the banks of the Yamsuf, they're finally ready for the whole picture. And, and Eretz Yisrael, the Hevesi, is back on the map. And that's where they were headed. So, so that is... <coughs> Based on the based on the Meshachachma. Well, the center, or in the center, and at the center of the parsha is are seven of the plagues, and I think it's worthwhile to talk about the plagues as much as we we, we can and have. And Amir Tashem will gone into each and every one of them to 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 look at their details. But it's also very worthwhile to look at them in. As a, as a complete set of ten. And the place to start, once again, is the Haggadah. Because as we know, we list them off, Dam, Tzvardeya, etc. <coughs> and then we quote Rabbi, Rabbi Yehuda. Rabbi Yehuda, he would divide them into subgroups and, 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 and he would summarize them. Detzach, Adash, Ba'achav. I remember my father, Zatzal, once told me that the Gemara says in the end of Maseches Brachos that uh, Rabbi Yehuda was Rosh Hamadabrim, Bechol Mokam. He would always speak first. Everyone loved Rabbi Yehuda's uh, speeches. And he, he said the reason why is because you see that he, he spoke so briefly, he spoke so shortly. He, he took even the ten words about Sarah Dibras and put them into an acronym. So he was, uh, he was everyone's favorite uh, either way. Vayomer Lakotsrim, Hashem Imachem, as Boaz said to the Reapers. So, in any event, so he's, he's divided them into these three groups, the Tzach, Adash, Ba'achad, the first three, the second three, and the last four. And as many Mepharshim explain, in many different ways, but, but dividing them in this way is because each of these three groups was, was different from the other. <coughs> Whether it's uh, showing Hashem's control over things that are uh, subterranean and then yesterranean and then aerial. And some of the explain the progression of Datsach, Adash, Ba'achav in that way. And there's, uh, there's other ways to, to explain how these are three self distinct, uh, three distinct groups. But what's interesting for our purposes is that not only can the ten makas be divided into three separate groups, but each group itself contains what you could call an internal circuitry. In other words, there is a certain consistency as to how each group of three would go. How those three of threes, of course, Makas Bechoris is, is, is the, 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 the ultimate Makah, but you have these three. What does this mean? Rabbeinu Bachya begins by explaining that if you look at each of these group of three, you'll find that the first two or have something that the third doesn't have, namely a warning. 
a warning to Paro before it happens. And, and to take, take, for example, to start at the beginning, uh, Dam and Svardea both have warnings to Paro. But when it comes to the third one, Kinim, it just happens. There's no warning to Paro. The same is true <coughs> for Tatsach, Dever, and Tatsach Adash, sorry, Arov, uh, and Dever, right? The wild animals and, and the plague also both have a warning. Shechin just happens, and the same is true for the Achav, Barad, and Arba both have warnings, and Choshech does not. And what does this mean? It means that there's something about the third one in each three where Paro almost deserved to receive it without even being warned. Based on what? Based on having ignored the warning for the first two? It's almost like it's a punishment within a punishment. Every time Paro goes to Makos, he's given fair warning and he doesn't do anything about it. The third one is on the house. The third one is gratis. And he invokes the concept, these are the, these are the two witnesses that condemn him to, to, to receive the third one without even being warned. What's interesting is, <coughs> the Malbim, who continues in this vein, similar to, to Rabbeinu Bachia, says that not, not only is there a distinction between the first two of each set and the third, as we've said, first two with warning, third without warning, but even there's a difference, a consistent difference between the first two. Where does the warning take place? The first one of each set takes place in one location, and the warning for the second one takes place in a different location. Namely, the first of each set, that is to say blood, and then the iron of Arov, and then uh, the, the base of Barad, takes place when Paro is by the Nile. Paro would visit, would visit the Nile uh, on a daily basis for reasons that were uh, not as uh, religious as, uh, as they seemed. But uh, <coughs> either way, that's how he would start his day in the Nile. And the Nile was, was a deity. And that, and that, in a sense, is a place of power for Paro. And therefore, for Moshe to confront him at the Nile was itself, a, that's, that's, a, that's a real confrontation. I mean, that, that's an absolute um, statement <coughs> negating the power that's meant to be backing Paro in the form of the Nile. So the first of these, of each one, always has the warning as administered when Paro is at the Nile. And that's its own type of blow to Paro. But where does the second one take place? In Paro's palace. Each time, the second of each of the warnings always comes to, to, to Paro at home. And, that, and that's its own type of blow. Because, after all, an, Egyptian's, an Egyptian monarch's palace is his castle. So it's a, it's a place of great uh, confidence for Paro. All of that is undermined and crumbles as Moshe does not hesitate. He comes and goes as he pleases, even in Paro's uh, own palace, and starts to... Uh, remonstrate with him and warn against him. So this is now the full picture within the Tzach Vadash Ba'achab. Each group of three, the first two are with warnings. And within those warnings, the first is a warning by the Nile, the second is a warning at home, each with their own inflection as to what that's meant to represent, and the third comes without warning. What's very interesting is to see how this is borne out later on in Tanakh, in a part in a Perik in Tehillim. And this is Perik Ayan Ches. As we know, 
there are a number of prokem in Tehillim which describe and, uh, and discuss at length the formative history of the Jewish people, including our experiences in Mitzrayim. And Perik Ein Ches is one of those. And I'll just read a couple of psukim because it goes through the makos. It mentions, for example, it doesn't mention them in order, that's another question. But Yishalach Bahim Arov Vayochleim. He sent Arov against, against the uh, and also Tzvardeya, which destroyed them. He turned their, their bodies of water into blood. And he, he sent uh, locusts against them. Bigiam la arbe locusts. gafnam. He destroyed with hail. And their cattle with plague. And that is the end of Tehillim Ayn Ches's presentation of the Makos. It's from Posit Mem Dalad to Mem Ches. Why do we mention this? Because the list is incomplete. The list mentions six of the Makos. And then concludes with Makos Bechurus. But on, on what basis would the Pasuk talk about some of them and leave some out? Presumably the list is not complete without the ten. What's the difference between the ones that it mentions and the ones that it doesn't? But if you look at those psukim, you will see something very interesting. The ones that are mentioned are the ones that came with a warning. The three that are left out are the three that came without a warning. In other words, you can see from, from the, the Perik and Tehillim <coughs> that there's a different dynamic going on with the plagues that came with the warning so that has therefore the element of power. He hears the warning, he disregards it, and therefore the punishment that's being focused isolates therefore these seven that came with the warning, the first of each set plus Marcus Bechorah's, and the third of each set is not mentioned here because it's not relevant to that aspect. So what begins with Rabbeinu Bachia in the Rishonim and is developed then through the Malbim in the Acharonim is ultimately can be traced back to David HaMelech in Tehillim itself to see how there is a qualitative difference between Makas number 3, 6 and 9 as opposed to the others. And this underscores for us something that which we've uh, uh, discussed at length on other occasions how from a certain point of view the very first commentary on the Chumash is the Tanakh, meaning is the Nevi'im in Ksuvim. The way that they will describe things that happened in the Chumash is already there to shed light. Uh, sometimes we need the help of later commentators to really pick up on what the, on what the Psukim and Nevi'im in Ksuvim are saying. But uh, David HaMelech is of the, of the earlier commentators. Uh, if we talk about Rishonim, this is pre-Rishonim. This is, this is Nevi'im in Ksuvim themselves. Let's conclude this evening by just moving to the end of the parsha, and the Makkah of Barad. So as we mentioned, the first, uh, the first seven of the ten plagues are in our parsha. The final three will be in next week's parsha, and number seven is Makas Barad. And I'd like to look um, just a couple of seconds before the end of the parsha. We'll see a very interesting uh, comment. 
So in Pasuk Lamed Aleph and Lamed Beis, and this is literally just a few seconds before the end, so as we know, the uh, hail, it, it, it hailed down on, on everything, and uh, including uh, you know, Pyro's own domain, as one of my uh, colleagues put it, this is the original hail to the chief. And the, the psukim now described the, what was affected and what wasn't affected in a very seemingly detailed way. Pasuk Lamed Aleph. The flax and the barley, that was damaged by the hail. Why? Because they were already more advanced and they were, in, in a sense, the, the storks were harder, less resilient. So when the, when the hail hit, it just, it just it destroyed them. In contrast to this, Lamed Beis, In contrast, the wheat and the spelt were not damaged. And what does Aphilos Heina mean? Aphilos, Rashi explains, means Mu'ucharos. They <coughs> ripened later. They were, they were later in, in production. V'adayin hayu rakos, which means at the time when the hail struck, they were still soft and pliant. V'yecholos lamad b'fnei kosha. So something hit them, it wouldn't crush them. It wouldn't snap them or, or crumble them because they were yet very uh, pliant, as we said. <coughs> That's a very interesting uh, psukim. I mean, we mamish go down to techameshes haminim. Which ones were affected, which ones weren't affected, the, 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 the barley was and the wheat wasn't, for reasons that we said. The, what, that which was already ripe got destroyed. That which wasn't ripe yet weathered the storm, literally. But then Rashi <coughs> quotes a medrash on the words afilos heina. Again, the, fir- the pshat explanation of afilos heina means they were late, later in ripening. But then Rashi says, Some say differently. And they expound, You know what aphilos means? Wonder of wonders was performed for them. It was an absolute miracle that they were, that they were not uh, destroyed. So these are two very different explanations on aphilos. The first is agricultural. They just were later in ripening, so they were more flexible. <coughs> and the second is pile plos. It's an abs- wonder of wonders that they, uh, that they were not destroyed. And then the Siva Samishpat, Rabbi Yaakov of Lisa, and he asks a, a very interesting question. What's the wonder of wonders? And you just gave a perfectly reasonable explanation as to why they weren't uh, destroyed, because they were flexible, however that works. But if it works, it works. So having explained on a very straightforward way, what makes it so wondrous? Why do we still insist? Why does the Medrash Tanchum yet insist that it was Pile Plaos? So he says something very disarmingly simple. Even if the, these crops were not yet right, they should have still been destroyed. Why? Because the Psukim tell us explicitly that in the, in the plague of, of hail, it wasn't just hail that came down. It was hail together with fire. Which means whatever it landed on, it set on fire. So whatever the hail won't take care of impact-wise, the fire will take care of conflagration-wise. 
Which means, if you want to understand how these crops, the wheat, etc., were not damaged, it's not enough to say they were later in ripening. That only explains why they weren't destroyed by impact. But you set them on fire, they're still going to burn. So why were they, did, did they remain completely unscathed? Pile plos. That's a miracle. That's a wondrous thing. Very interesting, just in terms of the, the, the logistics involved, one could say. <coughs> the practicalities involved. But then Rabbi Yaakov of Lisa goes on to ask, but why were they spared so miraculously? What's the message? The message, says Rabbi Yaakov of Lisa, is some food was destroyed, some was left over. Which was destroyed and which was left over? You know what the answer is, says Rabbi Yaakov of Lisa? The food that they made the Jewish people work to produce was destroyed. The food they had to produce themselves, that they could have. What does that mean? The wheat and the spelt were a later crop. We know, the Gemara tells us in Maseches Rosh Hashanah and Dafyud Aleph, <coughs> that the, the labor stopped on Rosh Hashanah. That means for six months prior to leaving Mitzrayim, the Jewish people were no longer working for the Egyptians. So who's, so who's sowing their crops? Who's sowing the seeds? Who's, who's, who's doing all the, the work for them? They have to do it themselves. Anything that grows based on prior work, was work done by the Jewish people. And what is the Pasuk saying? You made them slave. They're leaving, but they're not leaving the food that you made them slave for behind. That's what one could call, if we could borrow the expression, avodah ivrit. You made the Hebrew people slave for that. You don't get to benefit from that food. That gets destroyed. The food that you yourself finally had to work for, you can have that. You'll be, you'll, you'll be fine. That's what's behind the Pile Plus. They were not left as the beneficiaries in any way of the work that they made the Jewish people do. The Jewish people don't need it because they, 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 they'll be sustained by the man, so they'll be fine. This is Jewish-produced food. They're not taking it. You don't get it either. That's what gets destroyed. You know what you can have? We'll leave that over for you. That's Pile Plus because those are two very different types of food. Fascinating comment at the concluding portion of the Parsha. So we had quite a bit of uh, Parshanut this evening. We tried to do justice to <coughs> specific terms, Zroa the Arba Loshonus of Geula, Kot Seruach, uh, and to look at the, the relationship of the Makos, uh, to see how, how uh, they're organized into groups and subgroups, uh, and hopefully uh, to leave Baruch Gadol uh, from the weekly Parsha. Of course, there's so much to say, more that we need to say, but uh, we'll leave that for a different time. The meanwhile, Ushul, a wonderful evening and a great week ahead. All the very best. Thanks very much, Thank you very much.